Merry Christmas again, church. I just want to make sure I had everything here. I got this, and I can preach, I guess, now. I got the Bible. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and uh, sometimes it gets awkward like that. Yep. Uh, I'm one of the elders. The other two aren't as awkward as me. Uh, and we, uh, we lead the church, and we are excited about finishing off our series, our Advent series called His Name Will Be. Today we finish off our series by zooming in on the final name given to us in Isaiah verse 6 of chapter 9, and the name is Prince of Peace. I'm going to ask you to stand your feet to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9, and then verses, we'll do verses 2, and then we'll skip right down to verse 6. So verse 2 and 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thank you, God. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that, that goes beyond our feelings or the, the, the Christmas vibes, goes beyond our opinions or our assumptions. Lord, help us to consider the peace that only you give. You are the prince of peace. And knowing the kind of peace that you give, we can be just full of all sorts of pain and yet swimming with your peace. Lord, the night before you went to the cross, you were in all sorts of anguish, probably some of the deepest darkness any human being has ever faced. And yet in that moment, you promised peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Lord, if you can have peace in a moment like that, then your peace right now can swallow up whatever pain we've brought in here today. And Lord, we also acknowledge that there are all sorts of other people, friends of ours that you've placed around us, our neighborhoods, our, in, our, in our work, that are full of all sorts of fun and delight and ease this Christmas season, and yet they're drowning in anxiety and fear. And Lord, we're asking that you would give us a peace that draws our friends and family and loved ones into the light and allows our peace to shine in the darkness. Allow us, therefore, with fresh eyes to acknowledge you for who you are and be renewed by you. Amen. Verse 2 of my favorite Christmas hymn. Hail, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. 
Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Light and life, in other words, peace, is something that only the Son of God can bring into the world. But sadly, it doesn't stop the world from trying to fabricate peace in all sorts of really painful ways. Jesus is the only one who can bring true peace into the world. Now, why do I say that? Is it just so, so I can make a brash claim, or is there reason for that? And based on how I said that, there's, there's reason. When we're stained with sin, and we're blinded by the darkness of our own fallen condition, we tend to paint a fuzzy picture at best of what peace is. It's like our kids who are in the congregation with us today. They've been given a piece of paper and some markers. But imagine if you took a kid and said, hey, I want you, here's a few colored pencils and here's a blank piece of paper. I don't want you to go into the closet and draw a picture of a sunset or or a cool meadow, right? They're like, okay, so you close the door, but then you cut out the light. And if by chance this child were to do his or her best to draw something like that in the darkness, and then you turn on the light, and you looked at that piece of paper, let's just say, let me be careful here, it would be harder to discern that drawing than if the light would have been on, right? It would be a fuzzy at best picture of a cool meadow or a sunset. And this is like our renderings of what peace is as human beings when we're walking in the darkness of sin. We need light, the light of God, to know what peace is. And that's just it. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness. This means people that are bound by the sin condition that the Bible calls depravity. These people, us, we've seen a great light And then he underlines even deeper, those who walk in a land of deep darkness. So we're talking a radical level of corruption in us. We have seen light shine on us. See, the context is that since Adam and Eve's original rebellion against God's loving rule, all of us humans have walked in this deep darkness. Darkness, and we've only known darkness. We would have no context for even knowing that there's any such thing as light. We're not this promise given. But as verse 2 declares, the light has come. And we're no longer left in the darkness to kind of come up with what what, uh, peace and what life's all about. We're not left alone to kind of paint fuzzy pictures that lead to just more darkness, more vain, futility, kind of meaninglessness. We're not, we're not left to ourselves to try to just kind of come up with a picture on our own and then kind of put that picture out there and see how many likes it'll get on Instagram. We're not left alone for that, to grope around in the dark because the light has been revealed. And specifically how that happens, verse 6, for to us a child is born. So if you kind of tie verse 2 together with verse 6, the light shining in the darkness is is this child. 
this child born to us is the light. To us, this son is given. So this prince of peace is the one who comes. And because of who he is, he starts to shine his light on everything. Light and life to all he brings, the song says. So this prince of peace is the one who brings light and clarity to life. And what peace and purpose and everything is truly about what life ought to be. Because Jesus is the great extreme ought to of all human life incarnated in one person. He brings clarity to that which was fuzzy. He takes the pictures that we've drawn in the dark closets of our sin, and he creates a blank canvas and starts to add color and texture and light to the purpose of why we even exist. And in this way, the S-O-N son is so much like the S-U-N son in how he brings peace and light and clarity. And no one says it better than the great late C.S. Lewis, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See, by Jesus, through Jesus' light alone, because his light has shown, he cuts through the fog and gloom and darkness and confusion of sin. And through our selfish depictions of what life is supposed to be. He cuts through it. And so that's, that's why with the rest of our time, I actually want to consider how Jesus brings peace and light to our darkness by specifically exposing sin and burning it away. Now, if talking about sin doesn't seem like the thing that brings light and peace Please stay with me. I think there's no better description of the peace that only the Son of God brings in shining his light over and against sin than in John's first letter written to the church. Now, last week to describe Jesus' relationship with the Father, we went to the Apostle John, his gospel account in chapter 10. And this week we're going to the first letter he wrote to the church. We're going to go to the first chapter of the first letter. So 1 John 1, if you want to turn in the Bible kind of towards the back, towards Revelation, then kind of go a few pages before that. We're just going to read one verse at a time, starting with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Stop there. Consider 1 John 1, verse 5 that we just read, and how it unveils and fulfills the promise of 700 years before this from Isaiah 9. Think about that. Isaiah 9's promise that God's light shines in the darkness, well, we know based on what John says here that God is light. And so God's light shining in the darkness is that God comes into the darkness in human form. Just like verse 6 of Isaiah 9 says that God comes into the darkness by being born into the darkness and shining his light. And that's what Jesus does. This is a great message. And let's underline what, what he says here. He says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning. This word message is important to consider. The Greek word used is epigelia, which means announcement or promise given. 
Church, you need to know this Christmas that the gospel is an announcement of something that's already been given. Like light shining in the darkness, it's, kinda, it's not like halfway shining and you kind of shine the rest. The light has come and it is shown in the darkness. And similarly, the gospel is the good news that this promise, this message has already been rendered in full. It's already been delivered. The picture has already been painted about how Jesus has come to us. And it bears implication on humanity. It shines on humanity and it must be known. The gospel message is not just an opportunity to have life. It's a message, it's a proclamation about life already being born to us, and we receive it. It's not a message simply about like a a way of life, a religion to be followed. It's the message about a son born to us who performs all the demands of religion, who does everything necessary to silence the principalities the, the demonic forces that would wage war against humanity. He fulfills all the demands. The gospel is a message. It's not a method for life. It's not principles to live by. It's, it's not ideas to follow. It's good news that light has already come. The good news that we never could have brought the light into the, the world, that we never could have followed God. We wouldn't have even known that there was anything such as light, as we said. We would have plunged ourselves deeper into darkness, and yet this message comes into the darkness, pursues us. Jesus follows us. Faster than we can run from him, he runs to us with his light. And this message is that Jesus has already done everything necessary for us to be in right relationship with him. So, so what do we do then? We, we are to see the light and see everything else by the light and savor him and rest in him and be transformed by him, be held by him. So moving on, verse 6, God is light. And therefore, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Now, no one wants to be a liar. But we don't know that we're being liars when we're walking in the darkness. That's, that's my story. And this is a logical point that I kind of missed for decades reading this verse. If God is light, then obviously we can't simultaneously share life with him and at the same time share death with the darkness. Light and darkness, it's either one or the other. And this can be demonstrated by like a first grade science experiment. It's either darkness or light. They don't coexist. They mutually exclude one another. It's either one or the other. It's kind of like hot and cold. If you were to give me a cup of coffee and I were to take a sip and immediately wince and be like, oh, shoot, that's really hot. That burned my lip. And then I were to say, oh, also, it's really cold. I have really sensitive teeth when it's really cold like that. You would look at me and be like, dude, go fix your head. It's either hot or it's cold. It's not both at the same time. And similarly, he's saying here, we can't say, oh, I'm walking in the light of God. I'm living for God. I'm, I'm a child of the light. And at the same time, I'm walking persistently in habitual sin in the darkness. He's saying, 
if we say that we have fellowship, we're sharing life and light with him, we can't walk in the darkness. That would be lying. So that's why how we walk in the light, how we defeat these lies functionally is so important. And this is why verse 7 gives us the key to that. This next verse we're going to spend like at least 10 minutes on, really slowly considering, okay? Verse 7 of 1 John 1. Circle this in your Bible. Color it with all sorts of beautiful colors in your Bible. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light with him, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is a lot of sin. That's some powerful blood. First word here that's, that's stated, this word if is a huge qualifier. In essence, if we reflect the purity that only comes from God, then that purity will purify everything else. But think about it in the reverse. If we don't walk in the light as he is in the light, then we don't have the fellowship that we want with other people because the blood of Jesus has not cleansed us to be able to be in that place. Human beings, we desire the fruit of the light. Love, unbroken companionship with other people. Fellowship is what the word says. We, we want to have peace and light and joy and something other than betrayal, uh, fidelity, life, love. We want all those things. But what John's saying is those things are only a fruit of the light that only the Son of God can bring. And so if we try to get all those other things, fellowship with other people, but we don't walk in the light of God, it's futility. We can't do that. The key to walking with other people in peace is being at peace with God. And don't miss the implied because of verse Seven. It's, it doesn't actually say the word because, but based on the progression of the sentence, there is an implied because. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now again, it might seem difficult to just talk all about all sin when we're talking about peace at the same time. I mean, one might ask, doesn't talking about sin and naughtiness, doesn't that kind of like make us more sad? How does that bring peace? Imagine, imagine you were drinking poison regularly and you didn't know it. Maybe your water source was downstream from some sort of chemical plant and you were just accustomed to drinking water that you didn't know was poison, trace amounts of poison. And and you had just gotten used to feeling sick all the time. And yet, for some reason, you didn't apply the fact that maybe the water you're drinking makes you that way. Maybe you thought the opposite. Maybe you thought the water you drink gives you just the the little remnant of of good feeling and health. And and you're just confused about all that, but it was the poison making you sick. What if someone came up to you and said, here, I have some studies here that, that show you... You're drinking poison. If someone told you, hey, there's poison, and if you stopped drinking 
that water and you felt better, then you would feel peace. But let me state the obvious. You would feel no such peace if you brought immediate disagreement with your friend who pointed out the announcement, the message of the poison. You would feel no such peace. In fact, if you disagreed with that person, then their very message would come across as an intrusion of your privacy, right? A breach of your trust. Kind of a, an offensive kind of, you're crossing the lines here, buddy. And let me state that your feeling of feeling peace or not feeling peace in that scenario would have less to do with how your friend brings the message, less to do with even if, if there's uh, poison in the water or not, and it would have everything to do functionally with how you receive the message and make an adjustment accordingly. Because if there's poison in the water, but you're not willing to acknowledge it, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't help you. And maybe, maybe in, in, in light of the poison spiritually of sin, maybe if we've grown codependent on certain things that we don't know are hurting us and poisoning, maybe we don't want to acknowledge things like, oh man, this, 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 uh, this thing, I need it. I need this, I don't know, credit card, this boyfriend, this kind of digital distraction, the, this feeling of self-pity. Um, this unforgiveness. I, I, I kind of need this to function. Peace doesn't come simply from acknowledging that's bad, that's poisonous. Peace comes from that being exposed as poison and then removed and washed. And so in essence, talking about sin doesn't just bring peace. It does just bring sadness if we leave it there. What brings peace is seeing that sin rise to the surface and be washed away. And that's exactly what this word illustrates. When it says in verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, the, the literal word in the Greek is katharizo, which means to purge or to consecrate. This is where we get our word in English, catharsis, which also means to cleanse or to purge. The whole nature of catharsis is that things are brought to the surface and purged away. And so when we draw closer to God, sometimes we can often feel like when we're closer to him, we we feel like more sinful sometimes. Like, man, I'm kind of more of a mess, but that's often not the case. Often it's when God's light shines on us, it's pulling things out of us that need to come out, be exposed, be dealt with, be confessed, and be removed by his blood. And God is so loving towards us that he would shine his light in a way that pulls those things out that might otherwise be plaguing us. I want to show, show you how this is true in my story. And I can hope that you can see the beautiful irony in this, that in my story, God's blessings in my life has so often come in this kind of cathartic sort of way. This process of sin, the closer I get to him being exposed and his light shining on me, in a way that just really kind of uncomfortably sometimes points out certain particular darkness moments. Lots of catharsis from my conversion to marriage to parenting. It's been a process of catharsis. 
from 1997 when the gospel was first preached to me. Now, I've shared this before that that when my high school friends invited me to the first Bible study where I first heard people actually talking out loud, uh, at least remember with, I had ears to hear it, the first time I experienced the preached word of God, I didn't respond to it with faith, but I had this strange type of peace from God, even before I had repentance. And the reason is because the first time I saw the, the, the Bible shine light on the, the, the lines of hard lines of sin that I was kind of dancing around my whole life, I had immediate clarity, like, this is what life's for, and this is where I'm crossing the lines. And I had this peace before I actually responded with faith. For, for, it was about a few weeks. What life felt like before that was confusion. Confusion about what darkness really is. And the best way for me to illustrate what my life was like before that was to take you back even further to my first track meet. I was about my daughter Alma's age. I was six years old. It was, I don't know if you all have this in Texas, but we called, it was called the Hershey's track meet. Okay, so maybe it's just us that understand what the Hershey's track meet. Apparently the Hershey's, the company used to put on track meets. I was, it was so fascinating to me though, because I got to run in races that started with guns, which was so cool. They'd shoot guns in the air. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this. So I'd line up there and my brother who was 12 told me, Peter, you got to stay in your lane. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay in my lane. All right? So I didn't know what that meant, but I was going to run fast. So they shot the gun, and I shot out of there, and I was among the first people that came off the line. I looked to my left, and I'm winning. I looked to my right, and I'm winning, but there's someone getting ahead of me. This dude's kind of coming up on me, so I just kind of nudged over to him. I didn't shove him, but I made him physically aware that I'm going to get in front of him. So I kind of nudged him off, kind of cut him off, and then I saw to my left there was this girl coming up on the front of me. She was kind of running faster than me, so I kind of nudged to her, and she got kind of scared and startled away, and I ended up winning that race. And I had that, like, man, look at me, triumphant look on my face. And I expected when I saw my brother that he would share the same triumph. And even though he was smiling... The closer I got to him, what was confusing is that his smile was more a smile of pity and not shared triumph, which made me feel really ashamed. My triumph turned to shame as he explained to me that the lanes, he got down and said, Peter, when I said stay in your lanes, I'm talking about these white lines right here. And he he pointed out the white lines on the track And immediately it became clear what he meant to stay in your lane. And I say that story because that's so much like that that moment of confusing, like confusion, like, man, I I should feel triumphant, but I can't figure out why it's not like my winning isn't quite winning. This is so much like life before the light of Christ and his word and his objective truth shines clearly on us. When I came back to Bible study, let's go back, fast forward again to high school. That's why my first experience with the preached word brought so much peace. Because we, we want to be good people in life. We, we want to be triumphant. And we wonder why we cycle through these vain and futile feelings of winning when we're losing. And we can't grasp what's the difference. 
Because grasping around in the dark without his light brings that sort of confusion. But when he brings clarity, even if it's painful clarity, there is peace that only he can give. And that's when I saw that Jesus makes us, gives us a life that we are to live, and he knows we can't live it. And he gives us a way by coming and living it for us. I didn't actually hear that part of the message until a few weeks later. And when I went back to this Bible study, and I heard the message about how Jesus lived the life I should have lived. Jesus ran the race that I could never run and win. And he lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I should have died on the cross. And he provided for me forgiveness and cleansing of sin, not just to give me a fresh new start to try my best to run the race again, but he gave me his victory that could never be taken away. And I received that message, and I've never been the same. And he gave me an ability to grow more in the light of who he is. And it's called the confession of sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin. That's verse 9. I'm going to get there in a second. From that point on when I received faith, for those first few years, I'll just say this way, I became addicted to confessing my sin. I do not endorse this method of growth groups. But our first men's group in high school, we, we had this list of, like, sins, like, there was like five or six of us. This is weird. Don't do this. Like, did you do this sin? Did you do that sin? And for some reason, that's all I knew at the time. And I loved those meetings because it wasn't like things that we did in my mind to like earn favor with God. In my mind, here's what that meeting was. Let me tell you all these reasons that Jesus has canceled out this guilt, this guilt, this guilt, this guilt. And I have all the reason to just be honest about where I am because his blood can cover that. It can cover that. It can cover that. At least that's how the Holy Spirit was showing me what this whole list thing was about. Most people don't see it that way, and I would not endorse doing a growth group like that. But I would endorse being honest and confessing sin like the word says here. We can see the clear lines that we've crossed over and that Jesus shines his light on and pulls us near. And it might sound awful to talk about sin all the time. Like it might not seem super wonderful. But if we're just talking about sin alone, maybe that is kind of awful and icky. But if we're talking about light and cleansing and catharsis, and new life in Christ, it's a different thing. And I want to be very careful when I say this and sensitive, but I think the perception that confessing sin is an icky thing might come more from the habit of holding on to sin, not confessing it. See, because when you hold on to it, sin is that thing that makes you feel guilty. But when you're in the habit of confessing it, sin is that thing that Jesus washed me of. And so it's cause for celebration. That's why it might seem like a paradox, but I can sing things like amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a sinful, dirty wretch like me. But because of this amazing grace that I boast in, that's who I am. I'm not the wretch anymore. I am the one bought by this amazing grace and any devil in hell that would suggest otherwise, I will sing louder. 
Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washed me white as snow. Me. He exposed my darkness. He washes me white as snow. And so I never have to wonder if I'm good enough to get into heaven. I'm absolutely sure that I am not good enough to get into heaven. But I'm more sure that his blood is more powerful than my sin. He purges the darkness with his light. And so peace, peace comes not simply from Jesus shining his light on sin, but Jesus shining his light on sin and giving the gift of repentance and me receiving it by confession. Moving on to verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Think about what it feels like when others deceive you. It feels like betrayal, right? That's it's like the worst feeling ever. But no one deceives me like I deceive me. And what, what would be the motive for us trying to deceive ourselves about whether or not, you know, we're good people or, or whether or not we're, as it says here in verse 8, without sin or at least the kind of sin that deserves the wrath of God. I think we would try to kind of pretend like that just to kind of avoid talking about our mess and, and try to almost kind of get this, cling to some sort of false peace. But you've kind of maybe heard this kind of cliche before, but with the blood of Christ, our mess becomes our message. Uh, our past becomes our power. Our, our sin becomes our story, our testimony that we can tell. Revelation 12, they overcame the beast, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives even unto death. See, because when, when you're truly free in Christ, there's nothing you can't talk about. There's nothing from your past that, at least with a Christian friend, you can't just be open and talk about. When you're walking in the life, there's, in the light, there's no, there's no goblins in the darkness that would haunt you or terrify you. No monsters in the closet. A little side note to promote one of the things that I love seeing happen in our church. One of the things that we do is called Victory Weekend. And it's a, it's a special focus throughout the whole day where you have help from friends to kind of unearth and shed light on certain habits of thinking that we have. I think it powerfully accelerates the whole process of confessing things and seeing catharsis happen. And that's the 1st of February. If you haven't signed up, sign up for Victory Weekend on the 1st of February. I want to read the last verse in our passage that we're going to read. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's most fundamental about this equation isn't how sinful we are, but how faithful and just this righteous and forgiving God is. It's the second time that John mentions cleansing. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins. He he gives us power to be new. He cleanses. I said earlier that he gives us a blank canvas, but he does that because he washes it with his blood and he gives us the power to confess his blood over the things that would try to dirty us and bring darkness. Now you could say, why do I have to confess sin out loud? You know, doesn't God know? 
Yeah, doesn't he know? And I would say, yes, God knows. But I think sometimes he knows that we don't know. He knows that we, we muddy things up in our own minds. And the enemy tries to deceive us, and we deceive ourselves. And so through confession of sin, God wants you to have a sort of trial out loud before your accusers. He wants to bring authority and finality over and against the darkness that would try to accuse you and condemn you. He knows that Proverbs 18 says, there is life and death and the power of the tongue. And he wants you to participate in the authority of shedding light into your darkness. Another way you could put it is, God wants to meet you where you are. Not where you're pretending to be. Not where you think you are. But where you really are. And he gives you the gift of coming clean and through confession saying, Lord, here I am, really and truly, so cleanse me in, in this. And so I want to I close similar to how I opened with the same hymn, seeing how the Prince of Peace, how he deals with our sin. Consider the often omitted verse 4 of Hark the Herald. Many of us maybe have never seen this. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now we face, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Now as we consider the sacrament of communion where we empty ourselves through confession out loud, and we receive the washing by faith, the washing of the body and blood of Jesus as our main sustenance. As we go to this wonderful sacrament, can you dare to mean some of these words in this song? Can you pray for your own bruising and self-effacing? If that's what the light of God coming in and restoring you entails. Would you stand to your feet?